You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, it's been a long time coming, but I'm delighted to be here with someone who has been pioneering the use of brick for a long time now. Please join me in welcoming Monique Woodward from Wawawa Architecture. Yay! <laughs> Monique, <laughs> Insert applause. <laughs> Monique, it's been, um, I was just looking over some of your projects and you've been a staunch supporter of Brick. You've had a number of entries in the Think Brick Awards that have achieved high commendation levels, both in landscape and residential. But tell me, just before we get into talking about Brick, just describe a little bit of your childhood growing up. Well, my family have always been in the construction industry. My father has a big timber mill and so I would always go with him and, you know, my cubby house in a way was just big stacks of bricks and logs and (laughs) getting in amongst the equipment, which was probably extremely dangerous. But yeah, I guess as a kid, I did that. And my mum would always go to open for inspections, you know, on the weekends. That was almost their hobby. Um, looking at buildings and looking at you know apartment buildings and houses and dreaming about that so I think it was pretty inevitable that I was going to be an architect. (laughs) So were they builders or architects or designers or was it just a passion? I think it was a passion they were sort of owner buildering you know a few things but yeah very heavily he's a sort of thought leader in the timber space Mm -hmm. and yeah, now has a big truss and frame business and builds like Carpet Metricon and things like that. And my brothers are in construction. You know, one of my brothers is dating an architect. Like it's very, <laughs> it's, you know, all of our discussions, you know, all of our Zooms during family Zooms during COVID were very much around like the construction industry and what's going to happen and forecasting and I don't know, things like that. So we're very, yeah, we're in deep. <laughs> okay. And what sort of, as you've outlined, there's all these different areas of construction that you could go into, but where did architecture become sort of the main, I guess, driver for you? Well, my dad said that I should be an interior designer. I wanted to do advertising, did work experience, didn't love advertising, and then organised work experience at an interior design and architecture firm. Mm -hmm. And I got put with five different architects. And one of them happened to be Mel Bright from Studio <laughs> Bright. And, you know, the four others were all now running their own practices. So I was so lucky to meet these incredibly sort of famous architects who were, had just graduated from RMIT at the time. Mm. And I think I just fell in love with a Mel, but also <laughs> the idea of architecture. So we made models and, and whatever. And so then Mel said, go to RMIT. So I went to RMIT. She got me my first job at lab. And then I basically just, yeah, fell completely in love with being around architecture and meeting people and collecting as many experiences as I could. So yeah, then worked at John Mortals, Cassandra Complex, ARM, mm. and then yeah, started World War. Yeah. <laughs> so just thinking back, like in when you were at university, were there any sort of architects outside from your immediate, I guess, social and professional circle? Were there any architects that you admired or that you used as for inspiration? Or? Uh, plenty. I mean, mm. I was always a huge fan of 
Uh, I did a Peter Corrigan studio when I was at RMIT and I think, you know, his legacy really had an impact on me and I think that is true in our work today that you can sort of see hints of how his legacy has played out in the different sort of firms around Mm -hmm. Melbourne, ARM, Cassandra Complex. And so I think very much the mission of our practice is to contribute to the legacy of Melbourne and understand what that means and almost be part of that lineage. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was a big fan of kind of local vernacular. Yes. um, And, yeah, have been quoted a lot saying I love hills hoises and, you know, those kind of things that are daggy. I love kind of playing with those and lionising them and the extraordinary ordinary and things like that. So I feel like that really did come from Peter Corrigan and, you know, I always thought about that John Golling's photograph with the brick sort of church that mm. he did and then the kangaroo in the foreground and things like that. Like I love playing with sort of Australian iconography. Mm. And you obviously before you began, well, 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 we'll get to that in a second, but you worked in quite large architecture firms. What did you take from those in terms of the impressions that they left on you and how it steered you towards your own? I mean, I think I always knew that I would run my own architecture practice. I love business. Mm -hmm. Um, We were the first architects to ever win the RMIT business plan competition. Mm -hmm. So I always had that in my mind. I obviously, you know, my heroes were the people that worked and the directors of those practices. Mm -hmm. You know, I loved working in big and small teams. And so I got a variety of experience in different sort of size practices. But really it was just more meeting all the architects and being around it. It felt exciting and it Mm. felt you know, energizing to sort of be part of a competition team and not know if you were going to make it to the end and, you know, are we going to get the panels done? And that energy was really intense and, you know, exciting, but also draining. And Mm. I think I liked being able to do my university work and then we were always working. I also taught at RMIT and um, Monash when I finished school and would always sort of impose that idea of like, you must have a job, like you must be working. Mm. Um, As a student, I think that sort of fallen by the wayside a bit, but it was just the most exciting time of my life really to be studying and embellishing the academia of practice and design studios, but then also be working, um, seeing the drama and how it unfolded. I think maybe, maybe I just love the drama. Do you still get excited about competitions? Well, I think I sort of got burnt out a little bit mm. by competitions yeah. and we've done a few and we've, we've won a few. Uh, within WoWo, which has been really fun, but they are, I'm very selective about the competitions that we go into because I know that we're sort of all in, which is exciting. But yeah, the competition thing, you know, it's so costly to do competitions. So Mm. it might cost 20 to 50K. I mean, Mm. some firms even more to do a competition. And so early on, we had the idea that instead of actually doing sort of countless competitions, that we would contact a community group that was trying to seek funding, their mission would obviously be in alignment with ours. And from an early age, I guess we sort of thought, well, why don't we just work pro bono (laughs) with a community group and then help them secure funding and take our free from that. And given that most young architects aren't handed projects on a platter, we kind of thought maybe that was an inroad to actually getting experience, sort of manifesting these these projects ourselves. So that was an approach that we took, I think, because of the burnout from the competitions as a student. And we won so few and the chances are so low. So I think, you know, I always think about like DCM who – you know, won their first big Melbourne competition when they were like 30. And I just thought (laughs) that, you know, City Square and that 
if there was another city square competition, they would probably win it today <laughs> as you know, the, the same like bigger practices that were given opportunities as youngsters are still operating in Melbourne. That's why we have such a rich design culture in Melbourne yeah. and, you know, in Australia generally, but yeah, it's like those opportunities aren't necessarily being given to emerging architects today. It's more a model of like partnering with larger practices to kind yes. of get a, a shed over here or a little pavilion over there and things like that. Yeah. And so that's fine. Things change, but yeah, we were sort of became interested in how to how to little firms, yes. you know, at the time it's contribute. Really like, it's such a, a beautiful approach, actually. I love that approach to community. And um, one thing I've learned through my time and just speaking with architects is the tenacity is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, even from the competition stage to perhaps even if you win the competition and then build the actual mm-hmm. project. I mean, I think one of them took us speaking. It was Ash Galvin. I mean, 10 years, you know, it's a long time. Yeah. Really, there's a lot of tenacity in what architects do. Yeah. One of the competitions that we did win was the one to the refurbishment of the Melbourne Underground Car Park at yes. you know, Melbourne U. Yeah. And we won it and we were excited and we did the master plan and then it got instantly shelved because of COVID. And so yes. that's the thing, like, even if you win and do the sort of, you know, initial phases, it doesn't mean it's going to get built. So, yeah, I think that's <laughs> It's so lucky for a, a building or a house or any piece of urban design or something. It's almost like each project, if it actually comes into being, is a, a bit of magic. Yeah. So tell me how you got to Wah Wah Wah. How did this all come about? You've mentioned you already knew that you wanted to, to have your own firm. Yeah, I've always wanted to run my own practice. Always felt that I was a really good enabler of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why, you know, I liked teaching, but I wasn't necessarily the most skilled documenter or, you know, modeler or whatever, but I had a lot of clarity and was good at working in the leadership space. Yeah. That's something that I was really passionate about. You know, I have a lot of friends that are entrepreneurs and they go to parties and it's all high-fiving and, you know, they have this sort of energy about them that is quite different from architects. And, yeah, I think we just sort of had work at the time. Our first commission, as is generally the case, was my parents' beach house. And so we worked on that and then yes. um, that was in the Think Brick Awards. And, you know, we've always had a lot of supporters in the media and always been published in houses magazine and Mm. things like that and so because we had a really good support network it felt natural that we were able to sort of continue to you know quit our day jobs and really lean in you know it was a huge investment at the time like I remember we were uh, gonna buy a house we went to a few auctions and it was either sort of start a practice or buy a house and you know I think in a way it was lucky that we missed out on those early auctions because oh, really? we wouldn't have had the backing so we essentially used our like home deposit to launch Wawa, mm-hmm. which you know i feel like we've only just sort of siphoned that money back in a way you know in terms- that was in 2009 you started 2010 oh, 2010 2010 yeah so i graduated mid 2009 yes worked at arm and then we started mid 2010 so yeah and looking back like is what would be one of the early projects that you are really fond of is it the beach house or is it yeah I think so I mean I think you always you love your first right (laughs) first love I mean it was in that project that we learned how to why bricks were so valuable in a way because because they're such an integral part of the project they can't be value managed out Mm -hmm. and so I think you know so that client which was obviously my mom 
you know, she wanted a project that really worked in with the landscape and there were a whole heap of bottle brushes on site. And so we sort of said, well, you know, you could pick out the greens or you could pick out the insane reds. And so that's what we did. We sort of went, well, it'll be a red brick house, glazed brick. And we we sort of really, yeah, we loved that that idea or learned, learned that quite quickly, that if there was value management afoot, yes. uh, which there was in that project, that the brick always stays. So it was a kind of cheeky way of maintaining the colour and vibrancy of a project. Mm-hmm. So, And since then, I guess you've become a master at almost the curved bricks. That's I can always pick a lot of your houses because of that. And, yeah, let, let's talk about some of the houses and the design and probably just using the platform or the springboard of what you've just said about brick. But, yeah, why brick in what you do? Well, I guess I'm a bit of a farm girl in a way. I'm from Berwick, which, you know, is very suburban now, but at the time it was uh, very country, even sort of the main drag of Berwick was very like a farm at the back of my house even though we were very close to the center and then we moved out even further which again is now very suburban but at the time it was you know rolling hills and I had a horse and cows and things like that and close to the house was quite a few brick ruins and I was always really fascinated about how sculptural they were within the landscape and you know when I went to uni then made this sort of comparison between some Judd sculptures and visiting seminal sculpture yards, <laughs> you know, like estates with sort of sculptures around. Like it became really obvious that these the sort of accidental architecture and, mm. and sculpture that exists, you know, as, as relics within. And so our Merry Creek House was very much based on those ideas. So it's in Fitzroy North, which is really within the real inner city, but the site itself was next to Mary Creek mm-hmm. and there's a lot of vegetation around there and it did feel kind of otherworldly near that site and it sort of felt a bit ruinous and so we thought well, we'll use the bricks to create a ruin and really that's where the curved bricks came from. They We didn't sort of start out as it being a kind of style or aesthetic. It mm-hmm. was really more that we wanted to create these ruins and relics. I think we have a hashtag that's like, Geo relic, what well, well, geo relic or something like that? Okay. I'll, I'll have to find it. But um, <laughs> yeah, at the time we just got really obsessed with creating a bit of a taxonomy of these pieces, and you know a lot of them had been destroyed because of I guess urban sprawl mm. that they sort of got eaten up by homes. But really, that's where they came from. And also looking across the street, there were a lot of deco, triple fronted brick veneer, like curved waterfall sort of houses, and so there's that nostalgia that like that we like to play with all the time, like. Yeah, and I think just on a quick segue on that, I mentioned to you that during COVID I was listening to your podcast and then I also managed to see on YouTube the Brick series. Can you just quickly give that a bit of a shout-out because I loved it. Hmm. Yeah, those are funny. I mean, they were done in 2014, so they're super old. Yes, but what's the series called? (laughs) They're called If You Were Mine. Yes. And so the idea was that Robin Boyd did these series of diagrams of the different suburban styles. So the different styles that were around Melbourne, he was saying that they were insanely ugly and everything should be knocked down and be modernist architecture. But I really love those diagrams and I'm like, right, I'm going to go through those and find a signature, you know, an example of those houses and then kind of say, well, if this was mine, what would I do? Mm. Because, you know, as you know, a lot of architects, like they'll design their dream home and that'll generally be quite award-winning. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of, you know, did, at the time I didn't have any money. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, we'd start, oh, I wasn't going to buy a house. 
And so I was like, right, I'm going to go around and say, if this house is mine, this is what I would do. And I'd film it. We had a client who swapped us town planning fees for some TV training. And so I thought, it, you know, it was a good way of actually using that training that I'd developed. It was, they're fabulous. I'm going to put a link to them in the show notes because they're a lot of fun and really actually I thought great ideas and great practical tips. Yeah. So you have always used brick in nearly every project. Do you mm. continue to be surprised by it? Yeah, I think we try and push the boundaries. We have a Borromini series in our studio that kind of aims to use, you know, standard brick shapes uh, in fresh ways to create quite complex geometry that a lot of ornament, you know, occurred with brick in a vertical plane. And so for us, we're trying to kind of manipulate and create that complex geometry in the horizontal and create something super monumental and Mm -hmm. (laughs) fort-like. You know, the fronts of a lot of houses are so robust and solid. And so it's always our ambition to create something as solid and robust on the back as Mm. well, rather than sort of saying, okay, well, the front and the front solid and then create something glassy and light at the back. I think we kind of like the idea of the two sides being the same and having equal weight and equal facing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where our Janus Ruiz came from. Janus is the Roman god of past and future. It's a sort of this two-faced god that faces in both directions and it's meant to be around duality and fresh beginnings and things like that. And so we created Janus Ruiz, who was like, so Ruiz being kangaroo, it's two-faced kangaroo. And then it has a, like a Victorian tramp stamp on its neck. Anyway, you can you can add that. I will. To, but it's our logo that we use essentially on our Instagram and it's sort of dotted around our website. So yeah, this sort of the idea of two truths being true, multiplicity and duplicity and that we can hold more than one truth at a time is something that we also play with a lot from a sort of a conceptual perspective, but also, you know, we like all of the elements in our work to be dual purpose. So it's a stair in a way it's quite Venturi. It's a stair and it's a fireplace. Like it's this and that, that going back to that value management piece, that if something is working hard, if it has two purposes, then it's very hard to value manage. And so Mm. that's kind of, we cut our teeth on really cheap renos, um, but we keep that same ideology and philosophy in our expensive $2 million renovations now mm. because they're always working really hard. Everything has to have its place and have its purpose and otherwise it will. Like even an expensive renovation, it's yeah. still going to get value managed if it doesn't work hard. Mm. And um, just because you're trying to do more, suddenly you're trying to do a roof deck and a cellar and yes. <laughs> all the things. Um, yes. So, yeah. And you've been a founding investor of Nightingale. Maybe can you just describe Nightingale and what it hopes to achieve, what it has? Nightingale is so special. (laughs) You know, it's such a privilege to have been part of that movement within Melbourne that aims to create housing that centres around people, not profit, is their sort of cash line. And we very much subscribe to that. That idea from a, you know, because of our B Corp, certification but before that even happened just supporting architects being entrepreneurial and taking things into their own hands I mean I always remember Jeremy McLeod saying that he wanted to address housing affordability because he felt like he wanted his staff his team to be taken care of and he recognized that they couldn't access housing because of wages and affordability and so he wanted to use their skills as architects to kind of create affordable housing for them and so that's why 
that was this, in a way the kind of origin story I'm not sure that they would use that now as their <laughs> origin story but in a way that really resonated with me because I knew that we would have a team and you know you want to take care of your team they become your work family mm. and you want to kind of support them and rise up together and you know make sure that everyone's sort of financially taken care of in a long-term way the long game is something mm. that I really love about Nightingale and so yeah we we had a site and we were originally do part of the Nightingale Village. It was seven sites, seven architects, seven communities. And yes. then our site got sold uh, and became a park, okay. which was eternally <laughs> devastating, obviously. <laughs> but we're back now. So we've, we've got another site, which is exciting. I guess following on from Nightingale, what I wanted to ask you was, with everything going on with the climate and the environment and I guess the future of, of housing and where people live, what role do you see that architects should play in that? We have such a rare opportunity to imbue our values that for the most part, I would say architects have a very strong sustainability driver. Mm. And so there is such an appetite within Nightingale to push the boundaries of sustainability and to be a pioneer and a thought leader in that space. And so we couldn't be more excited than that. So that's mm-hmm. always been part of their, you know, value system. So there's a lot of alignment there. And they are being very experimental, which is good. You know, a reductivist mindset is how every architect's asked to approach it. And, you know, one of the best things about being part of the village was that there was, you know, multiple architects involved. And so, again, we're part of a team where there's multiple architects and that sustainability shouldn't look a certain way. You know, I think Breathe were very successful in setting up a kind of visual language around that. But something that I think Nightingale sort of speaks to is that sustainability can look like anything. You know, it doesn't need to have an aesthetic. It should be within the DNA of every project. And I think that that's why it's so successful and resonates because everyone's different. Everyone wears different clothes. Everyone wants to live in different spaces. And so that's the success of Nightingale that it has a variety of visual languages for people to choose within. So they get to live in a Claire Cousins. They get to live in a Kennedy Nolan. They get to live in a wah, wah, wah. So I think that that's the most exciting part that it is kind of allowing architecture to be accessible by more people. And it is almost like the extremely wealthy <laughs> clients who in some ways subsidize that architecture for the many. And I think that's obviously the kind of, you know, socialist in me. I lived in Copenhagen as a student. And so I feel like I have a bit of that, <laughs> you know, Aww. champagne socialist. You, you articulated that beautifully. And, and I love that different ways to look at sustainability because I think that sometimes people have this, perception of it and it and it sticks whether it's right or wrong whereas it it can be explored Hmm. you've obviously participated in the think brick awards which is a competition and i just and you've done some amazing things for our industry i think at one particular time you were up at the crack of dawn going out to logan with me to speak with (laughs) one of our members but i just wondered whether you could just talk to a little bit about your experience with the awards and how they're different from others they're definitely more fabulous <laughs> than any of the other ones because of yours truly, yeah. They're such a big event, you know, they're so glamorous. They're so, you know, it's such an incredible experience. It's, you know, it is dinner and a show. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're sort of surrounded. It's always in an amazing space, an amazing setting, and you're surrounded by all these incredible architects and really impassioned industry manufacturing uh, sort of heroes that we've been able to make relationships and connect with in a way that we wouldn't if it was just all architects. And so I think that's something that's really unusual because architects have, I guess, relationships with reps of different 
materials, you know, all the suppliers that we have in our trade libraries. But to actually hang out and have drinks with them, it sort of bridges the gap between a professional relationship and a friendship relationship, which I think architects think of themselves as makers. You know, we love to get our hands dirty. Yes, we're using the computer in our professional capacity, but the majority of architects do love getting their hands dirty in some way. And mm. and I don't know, I guess the the visits to the factories and I guess from my child from my childhood since we went there at the start of the podcast like you know I love going to factories and seeing you know how things are actually put together and so uh, the Think Brick Rewards are amazing because they bring those universes together in a way that's meaningful in a way that's not just networky that it's actually just about people and understanding that buildings are made by people and that architects are people and that the buildings that we create are being used by people. And so most people connect through breaking bread. So the actual event itself is really special. That was excellent. Uh, Monique, if we've got some emerging architects listening at the moment and given your experience with Brick, what would be your advice, any tips if they were thinking about using Brick for a project? anything that you've learned along the way? You know, some of my best memories are going out to the different brick manufacturers, going out to their warehouses or showrooms and Mm -hmm. actually kind of laying out the bricks and using the samples to kind of work out, you know, what are the limitations and chatting to the suppliers about what you can and can't do. Like being experimental is something that we've always been able to do because there's been a willingness from the people that make the bricks to actually kind of experiment and mm-hmm. have fun with the people that know everything about the bricks because they're the ones that are going to be able to like help you test those boundaries. All right. Well, Monique, it's been my pleasure. You have articulated all your thoughts so beautifully. I'm envious of your command of the language and vernacular. We're just going to move into the rapid question the quick fire round now all answers are acceptable okay reading the news and newspaper or online i stay away from the news entirely handwriting or typing emailing (laughs) for sketching ideas and concepts would you use a pencil pen or an e-pen the ipad do you like to read books or listen to audio books definitely audio (laughs) i'm too tired (laughs) what's important to you style or substance I think everything and nothing. Coffee or tea? Both, and a lot of both. (laughs) TV shows or movies? Both. Antique or modern? A combination. Call or text? Both. Travel back in time or into the future? Can I say both? I feel like I'm cheating on all these. No, that's okay. Exterior or interior? Both. We see both as architecture. Video games or board games? Neither. Form or function? Both. (laughs) Complex or simple in relation to design? Both, right? Like it has to be both. I think that, as I said before about the the, this and, you know, the the Janus Ruiz is all things at once and that complexity is around the complexity of life and what's true and what's real and that's messy and I love that. Monique Woodward, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. (laughs) If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.